Welcome to Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime. Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Crime Spot. My name is Esther, and I'm here with Felix. Hi, and thanks everyone for tuning in to Crime Spot. In this podcast, Esther and I talk about current trends and phenomena of organized crime and how it intersects with our lives and societies. Esther, it has been a while since we last sat in front of the microphone. Yeah, absolutely. But we haven't been idle and I think today's episode was worth the wait as we're going to have the privilege to hear from Anthony Lowenstein. Correct. Anthony is a well-renowned investigative journalist, best-selling author and filmmaker. Among others, he has written for well-known media outlets such as the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Australian. He has also produced documentaries for Al Jazeera. He's done a lot. And today he's with us to talk about the mo his most recent book, Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside a Bloody War on Drugs. We will also be interviewing Anthony at the 24 Hours Conference organized by the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime on November 10th. For more details, please refer to our show notes. Okay, so let's get started with the interview. So we're here today with Anthony Lowenstein to discuss his book, Pills, Powder and Smoke, Inside the Bloody War on Drugs. Anthony looks into the genesis, the implementation, the consequences of anti-drug policies, questioning binary narratives opposing legal versus illegal ma markets. Lowenstein look, calls into question the actual benefactors of the war on drugs and brings to light its financial and human costs in source, transit and destination countries. Anthony, we're so pleased to have you with us. Thanks for being here. We reached out to you because both Felix and I enjoyed your book and specifically because your book is unique in that it shares insights from across the world drawing upon interviews and experiences from all continents and mixes that really with some really hard-hitting facts so with that in mind I'll just jump to my first question which was what was your motivation for writing this book and what drew you to a career in journalism? Let me first start off by thanking you guys for having me and I think it's really important to have these kind of conversations because I think too often when it comes to the issue of the drug war, it's very simplistic, often in the media. The media often frames these questions as the awful bad guy in Latin and South America, and there are definitely some bad guys, of course, involved in the industry. I'm not denying that for a second. But the picture is far more complicated than that. So just to go back a bit, how did I start my uh, life in journalism? I've been a journalist now professionally, I guess, for around over 15 years. I'm Australian. Uh, but I've often lived and travelled overseas. And I think for me, I can't really exactly remember one particular moment or day or anything, but I think for me journalism was, A, I wasn't qualified to do literally anything else. I mean, I, I wasn't even qualified to do that. In fact, I, nothing I'm doing now, I studied. And that's often quite different to say maybe what you guys are doing or what many people do in their careers. If you're a lawyer... You have to study law. I mean, it's sort of obvious to say that. But as a journalist, although a lot of younger journalists do study journalism, I never did. I did an arts degree, humanities degree in Melbourne, Australia. I'd studied history and um, film. And I finished that degree very engaged with the world, but you're not really qualified to do anything, really. And I guess over time, I felt that writing and journalism would be a way to challenge power. Uh, I feel that I felt that then and I feel it even more now that although if you ask many journalists 
what is the role of journalism? Why do you do what you do? I'm talking about political journalism rather than other journalism, which is valid, but it's just not what I do if you write about food or anything, and that's totally fine, but it's just not my area. But in political journalism, I think they'll say, well, we're doing it because we want to take on the powerful. Well, sure, but the truth is that most mainstream journalists say they do that, but in fact do not. They are happy to be close to power. And what that means is that many stories that you see in the press, whether it's online, print, wherever it is, is usually what what I'd call a sanctioned leak. It's basically a story that was given to the journalist by a government advisor or a corporate spin person from government, from an NGO, from whatever it may be. I'm not saying those stories can never be interesting or valid, but too often that means that journalists do that because that's how they keep on getting those stories. If they start trying to piss off those people, they're not going to get them anymore. And that was not what I wanted to do as a journalist. So I started writing, I guess, in the early uh, 2000s, particularly although I actually edited a student newspaper in Melbourne, Australia at my university many years ago, which I guess gave me a first taste of it. But in a uh, more recent sense, this century, it sounds weird saying this century now, God, anyway, but in the last 20 or so years, yes, it's been work over a range of issues. I've done a lot of work on Israel-Palestine, the drug war, obviously with this book, and just finally the issue with the war on terror. A lot of my work has been coming out of a post-9-11 environment. So obviously, um, I, uh, well, when 9-11 happened, I was in Melbourne, Australia. But a lot of my journalism has been, I guess, either a, a reporting of the effect of that event. And I think that event certainly has been cataclysmic for a range of reasons it's been largely or wholly negative for literally millions of people around the world whether we're talking about the war in afghanistan or iraq or countless other examples the war on libya um a lot of other places and the drug war is not directly related to 9-11 although as i say in the book the war on terror the language the idea that this war has to go on forever until what drugs are never consumed or trafficked or terrorism ends means in that justification the wars will never end because you're never going to end drug use, you're never going to end terrorism entirely. So yeah, my work I guess has been a curious journey of often trying to piss people off who need to be pissed off. The powerful I'm talking about, I guess. Well put. And in your book you draw upon a variety of case studies to illustrate your argument. It dedicates whole chapters to the Philippines, Honduras, Guinea-Bissau, Australia, Great Britain, the US. Why did you choose these countries, given that they're not necessarily the first countries that may come to mind when we think uh, of the war on drugs? I guess that was the reason you almost answered the question that, um, look, a lot of people who cover the drug war go to places like Mexico, and obviously Mexico is a key a place on the drug war. It has roughly 35,000 people being killed every year. The drug war there has consumed the country. The government from the top down is not every official, but many levels of government there are deeply corrupt. I would call Mexico a narco state of sorts. Um, and people could also go to places like Colombia. Um, and I'm not for a second ignoring those places, but I guess I wanted to examine countries that were maybe a little bit less talked about in the press. Uh, a country like Honduras, which people often don't think about, very few journalists go there. It's a obviously neighbour of the US. It's a client state of the US. 
the vast bulk of the cocaine coming into the U.S. goes via Honduras. And Honduras is largely a transit country for cocaine, although it's increasingly weirdly there are some coca plants there and plantations, I understand, which I didn't see when I was there. But Honduras was a very scary place to visit. It is one of the most violent countries in the world and it really gets any media. You know, in the last years during the Trump administration, which we hope is going to end soon, God willing, that, and if it doesn't, wow, what can I say about what that's going to lead to? But the often you did hear about Honduras in the context of a lot of people trying to leave Honduras and enter the U.S. as migrants, and often the U.S. saying basically, screw you, you can't come in. But too rarely it was discussed, why are they fleeing? I mean, what are they fleeing from? Why are they leaving this country? I mean, Honduras is quite a beautiful place in many ways, geographically. But they're leaving it because it is infected by massive gang violence. And one of the disturbing aspects, and I was in the country a few years ago doing research for the book, was there's, you know, I've really been to a country where virtually everybody you meet wants to leave. Now, often they can't leave for a range of reasons, logistical reasons, financial reasons, whatever, family commitments, looking after an old parent, whatever it may be. But it is the violence levels are so high and there's something there called a war tax and I didn't know what that happens and it's not unique to Honduras. A lot of other countries in that part of the world have them. A war tax is basically when you start a business. It may be running a food stall, it might be driving a bus, it might be running a shop. And the local gang or two gangs or three different gangs or four different gangs will come to you and say, okay, you can have the business, but you have to pay us a weekly tax. If you don't, we're going to kill you. It's literally as simple as that. And I saw footage when I was there on a mobile phone that someone had basically, a bus driver, had refused to pay. And one day a gang member came onto the bus and they shot the person while the bus was driving and while the driver was actually driving. And the fear that that kind of reality brings that to resist the idea of giving to essentially, you know, it, it's it's protection money, right? I mean, that's what it is. So anyway, Honduras is the place I want to go to and, and possibly more importantly, it's essentially over decades been a country where successive leaders have worked with the US to... Um, on paper, combat drugs, but in reality, there's been successive leaders, which essentially a narco president. So the current president, Hernandez, is a narco president. Vast evidence that he is funded through narcos. His brother is currently in the U.S. prison. He'd been importing, trying to import cocaine to the U.S. Uh, Tony Hernandez. I mean, every level of that government's totally consumed by um, narcos. And to me, it was important to really go to a place like that because... When the U.S., which of course is the key driver of the, of the global drug war, talks about fighting a war on drugs, you have to ask yourself, okay, how are you fighting that war? Who are you partnering with to do so? And if you think that by partnering with, say, Honduras and overlooking the fact that the government is infested with drug cartel money, you're doing literally nothing to actually stop drug trafficking, literally nothing to stop drug use. In fact, drug use in the U.S. has never been higher. Of all drugs, obviously um, marijuana is the most popular, which is increasingly legal, but I'm talking also about cocaine or whatever it may be, fentanyl, heroin, um, ecstasy, whatever. And 
it was a place I wanted to go to. And the fact that virtually no one goes there was a reason why I wanted to go, right? And the other countries to some extent were the same. I mean, obviously, Philippines has got a bit of coverage with Duterte, the current president, whose leadership has probably killed at least 30,000 people in the last four years. I mean, it's been a complete carnage there, going after low-level drug users. Um, Guinea-Bissau, a country in West Africa, very briefly, is a transit country. Most of the cocaine going into Europe and the UK goes via West Africa, including Guinea-Bissau, former Portuguese colony. And if you go there, and virtually no one ever does, it's also a reason I wanted to go, it kind of has the feeling of this very slow-moving, languid place, kind of nice weather, pretty chilled out, not much goes on there, no one ever really talks about it. And that's fine. So it's not as violent as, say, Honduras, but it has in the last decade or so, a bit more, become a key transit country for cocaine. So South American drug cartels are flying or more often shipping cocaine across the seas to West Africa and then often taking the drugs up the African coast via various groups, including some terrorist groups, then they cross into Europe and then they're distributed. Essentially, that's a very simplistic way to see it, but that's basically how it is. And because the demand for cocaine in Europe and the UK has never been high, UK at the moment has the highest rates of cocaine use in Europe. Rates of uh, death connected to cocaine has never been higher in the UK. So people have to get the cocaine from somewhere. People often wouldn't realise it's often going through a place like Guinea-Bissau in West Africa. So that's why I wanted to go. And the other places we'll get to later, Australia, US, UK, because they're Western countries that are fighting various levels of a drug war and they are failing on pretty much every metric you can imagine. But it doesn't stop the governments continuing to fight the war. That's really powerful, especially when you speak of Honduras and describe it as a country that everyone wants to leave. And against this background... How did you conduct your field research, especially in these countries where you know that journalists have been targeted in the past? So the way that journalists do it is a bit different to academics. I know that academics, if they go to a certain country, often have to get huge levels of, I guess, permission and letters signed by their superiors or whatever. Um, it's a bit different with journalists. In theory, nothing stops you getting on a plane tomorrow putting... <laughs> COVID issue aside, but before COVID or hopefully when COVID ends at some point soon, then you can jump on a plane, assuming you have a visa, and go to a country. Now, you'd be often crazy to do that in a place like Honduras because it's bloody dangerous, but how did I do it? So when I go to a place like Honduras or I've spent some time in the last decade in Afghanistan, places that are very, very difficult, not friendly to journalists, either violent, the risk of kidnapping is high, the risk of violence is high. In Afghanistan, there's obviously a risk of suicide bombing. I mean, you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, in Sydney, in Vienna, right? I mean, that can happen anywhere. There's obviously been terrorist attacks across Europe and the West. But in places like Honduras or Afghanistan, the chances are much higher. And they often do go after Western journalists, a bit less so in Honduras. But I had spent months and months connecting with locals on the ground who had been told were trusted. And we often work as journalists with someone called a fixer. A fixer is a lot person, male or female, in my experience much more men, but there's no reason why it can't be women, who are often journalists themselves. They will work with uh, foreign journalists, obviously you pay them a daily fee, and their role is really multifaceted. They are a combination of your eyes and ears. They are 
uh, often help you translate. They might help you get around with a driver or they drive themselves. You talk to them for months about what story you're trying to get. And I'd asked around various journalists, the ones who had been, I've often reached out to them online. You've been to Honduras. Who did you work with there? Who do you trust? Who do you suggest? And it was really a combination of speaking to those people, I think via Skype, those fixers to see, did I have a good feel about them? Did I think they were going to do a good job? Were they, did they come highly recommended? Are they trusted? And in certain places, particularly not so much Honduras, but in some of like Afghanistan, you really to some extent put the life in these people's hands. I mean, in some countries, as listeners will be aware, journalists are kidnapped, journalists are sold, journalists are passed on from one militant group to another. So Yes, you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yes, you can have a fixer who does nothing wrong, but you can just be screwed anyway. Of course that can happen. But as much as possible, I try to do a lot of my homework before I get there, where I want to go, who I want to speak to, and that's often done in conjunction with the local person on the ground. And I try to get as many recommendations about safe places to go, safe places to stay, um, journalists, uh I wanted to get obviously insurance. Um, insurance is quite expensive when you go to those kinds of countries. I'm not staying in a compound. I mean, often if you're an academic or an NGO worker, if you go to a place like Afghanistan, you literally probably wouldn't leave a compound. It doesn't work that way with journalists. I mean, obviously you're very careful. Um, you don't drive around in case you ask this question or listeners are wondering. You don't drive around with an armed escort. It just doesn't work that way. If you're with, say, CNN or BBC, which, of course, I'm not, I think there's possibility sometimes that their insurance requires you to have armed security. I've never travelled with armed security, ever, anywhere. And I, when I say armed security, as in I've never been armed myself. I mean, as in working with... Uh, or working with or traveling with people who are armed. I mean, there are, I mean, the only caveat to that is there are sometimes you go to places and there's no choice but to go with, um, an army or militant group who are armed themselves on paper for your protection, although I'm not sure it actually makes you feel any safer. You don't have a choice about that, but, um, sometimes, and, that, and that's really getting a feel over the years. If I was doing this for the first time 15 years ago, I would not have started off in Honduras or Afghanistan. And what's happened in the last year, just as a brief aside, is that because the media industry is kind of in collapse and the business model no longer works, if publication X wants to have access to Syria, Afghanistan, a war zone, whatever, they'll increasingly hire freelancers. And those freelancers, not all by any means, but some don't have the appropriate training or smarts about them and have gotten into real trouble. They've been kidnapped. They've been killed. Of course, you can be experienced and be killed as well or kidnapped. But in Syria, we've seen a lot of journalists who were kidnapped and killed and beheaded by ISIS. And the lesson one takes away from that is to, yeah, I mean, just to be as careful as possible and to really to not, if anyone listening is is keen to do this kind of work, to do your homework first, you know, not to be hot-headed and say, I want to report on the war in Afghanistan. By all means, go and want to do that, but be aware this is not, it's obvious to say this, it's a tough place. Like there are literally suicide bombings going off every day. So do your homework and find people you can trust.
that's the best guarantee you can have. It's not a guarantee, but it's the best chance you have of getting out of there in one piece with the, with good work behind you. Wow, this is uh, a bit horrifying and yet so interesting. And this actually resonates with the experience and advice shared with us by your colleague Ian Urbina, which is to do your homework. I mean, just to be clear, the people who were who were killed in Syria, and I, I was in Syria years ago, but before the war, so I can't speak for the last 10 years of the civil war there. The people who were killed there, James Foley and others who were killed, I'm not for a second suggesting that they were there because they're inexperienced. Look, you know, they went in there, they maybe made, made mistakes, maybe they did and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. ISIS are a genocidal organisation run by vicious lunatics. <sighs> and they were probably unlucky not to, to be not European because as I'm sure listeners will be aware, Europe often did get their people out. They um, paid ransoms. They, of course, deny that, but that's the reality. Um, America doesn't pay ransoms, neither does Australia. And Australia, I mean, Australia, I mean, the government, the government doesn't pay ransoms and nor does the US government. And there's been criticism of that. Um, many European governments do and have. And that's why not all, but many of their citizens who were kidnapped, often NGO workers or journalists got out, um, survived being in ISIS captivity. So yeah, as you say. Do your homework, do your homework, do your homework. Yeah, and moving on to drug responses, in many of the stories you tell, the reader is confronted with structural racism in the way we view drugs and develop anti-drug policies. So my question is, how does race affect criminal justice responses to drug epidemics? You know, race is central to how countries have designed their drug policies. So as I say in the book, and I won't go into too much detail now, but in the US, in Australia, in the UK, there was usually always an attempt to target at one particular minority group, Mexicans, black people, um, a minority. They were seen as, in America, for example, or um, elsewhere, they were seen as being drug-crazed lunatics. In the US, Mexicans coming across the border to work as cheap labor, which frankly has not changed. I mean, that's still continuing in the US to this day. Obviously, it's a bit different now with COVID, but that's not going to change. I mean, America would not survive, frankly, without cheap Mexican labor. I mean, that's the sad reality of that country. Um, that the whole rhetoric around this in the media at the time, when I say the time, I'm talking about 100 years ago, if not more, and this continued really until the 50s and the 60s, elements of the 70s, 1970s, that black men were on drugs, mostly marijuana and other drugs. They were giving it to women. And these women were so helpless that they slept with these black men and, you know, imagine, perish the thought, right? So this idea somehow that drugs were a corrupting force and that we need to, as a society, stop black men raping women. I mean, obviously the absurdity of that is that this idea that women might sometimes be willing participants in that whole enterprise, you know, never sort of entered their mind. But, I mean, I'm not suggesting there was not sexual abuse. Of course they would have been. But I'm saying that this idea somehow that women in Australia, for example, is very similar. Back then it wasn't the Mexicans, it was the Chinese. There were Chinese immigrants who were here many, many years ago um, in the gold fields in Australia a long time ago. It's the same argument. They were bringing opium apparently and they were going to seduce white women. And I say this in my book, there was, there's media coverage of, we have to stop these evil Chinese people. They're doing terrible things to, you know, it's always like our women, as in somehow white men own 
the white women. I mean, that was the language that was used. Now, you fast forward to 2020, and I would actually argue not a lot has changed. Yes, maybe you don't necessarily read in the New York Times today, as you did back in the day, that black men are going to be raping and defiling women, white women, because they're smoking pot or whatever they're doing. But the drug laws in the U.S., particularly in the last 40 years, and particularly um, since the presidency of Bill Clinton, who's a Democrat, let's not forget, has been a belief that, and Joe Biden, who may well be president or not soon, were central architects of a belief that you need to mass incarcerate particularly people of colour and minority groups to the point where now in 2020 you have every night in the US 2.3 million people in prison. 2.3 million people in prison. Now, they're not all there for drugs, for sure, but many of them are there disproportionately because of low-level, non-violent drug offences. And it's an absurd situation. And I talk about this in the book, the language that is used, just one example briefly before I finish, is that, you know, years ago when there were certain drugs very popular in the um, black community in the US, it was like crack cocaine, for example, in the 1980s, the language that was used was very much, these drugs are destroying black communities and we need to lock them up because they're going to come and somehow infect the poor white communities down the road. It was very unforgiving and very harsh. Now, you fast forward to the last five years where the opioid epidemic, which has been particularly affecting white Americans, although blacks too, the language has been much nicer, much calmer. We're not talking about locking up white people who use opioids. We're not talking about locking up people who use fentanyl. I'm not talking about dealers now. I'm talking about people who take the drugs. There's a much more, I have a, I can't remember the exact headline, but there's a, there's a sort of symptomatic article in the New York Times a few years ago which really, really touched on this, which is essentially something like the politicians who three decades ago would have been calling all these people to be put in prison for daring to take crack cocaine are now calling for compassion. Now, I support compassion. <laughs> I'm a big believer in compassion. But the truth is it's still today in 2020 the vast bulk of laws in many Western countries, putting aside the rest of the world, disproportionately affect people of colour. There's a reason why, in, say, the Philippines, as I talk about in my book, the Duterte regime is not going after the vast majority of rich um, drug dealers. They don't care about them. They're not interested in them. They're going after the low-level drug users who use something called shabu, which is a very sort of cheap high that you get there, buy for one or two US dollars. Um, and a lot of people use it because it helps them get through the day. And I, I sort of understand that to an extent. If you live there and see, as I did, some of the conditions people live in, I think I would take drugs like that every day too. I mean, literally, you're working off and back, this is more than men, but back-breaking work. So the way that the drug laws and drug rhetoric and drug language. That's why I also am trying through my book and my work around this issue in trying to change the language around this kind of issue that the media uses and others. And I had to sort of relearn myself. I was never a person who was overly derogatory towards people who took drugs, but I suspect I would have used the word junkie years ago. You see someone on the side of the road who maybe had been on heroin, you say, what a junkie. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't ever physically attacking him or anything, but I probably would have been dismissive of them. And I don't use that kind of language anymore. Um, I try to, 
I mean, be more understanding to, and the book, the experience of doing the book in the last five years, uh, six years has really, A, taught me how bad so much of the mainstream media still does on these issues, how demonizing they often are around drugs. And I've tried, and I'm sure I fail sometimes, but I've tried as much as I can in my book and my other work on this issue to be less, to use less judgmental language. It actually does make a difference to how the wider public who reads your work or hears your words treat people who take or use or consume drugs. So that's been a big part, and race is central to that, even more so as a as a white, um, privileged male. And I'm aware of that, who disproportionately will not be affected by drug laws. Yes, there are rich white people who get put in prison for dealing cocaine. Of course there are. But there's no doubt that in many, many U.S. states, even today, where uh, marijuana is either legal or moving towards legalization, even still today in 2020, disproportionately blacks are far more likely to be stopped and searched than whites are. It's just the, it's just the reality. It's, a, it's baked into the system. So unless you, as a society and a state and a government, undoes that and tries to undo the damage, and a potential Biden administration in the US has kind of sort of talked about doing some of that. Obviously, if Trump wins re-election, that ain't going to happen. But if Biden wins, I think there'd be pressure to at least try to do so. There could be, he's, of all the Democratic candidates, he in fact was the worst on drugs. But here we are, he's the candidate. So you have to work with what you've got. There's so much to unpack in your response. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of your points and especially how you highlight how race and class intersect both within a country and worldwide and how this affects policies and responses towards drug consumption. Because for some reason, the law has been more lenient towards, towards wealthier people consuming illicit drugs. But before we get to that, because we do have a question about ethical drug consumption and does ethical drug consumption actually exist, I just wanted to go back to your comments about US government policies towards preventing drug consumption. Because since Nixon and Reagan, I think there has been some kind of ongoing bipartisan support for the war on drugs. And even though the Obama administration may have been a bit more reluctant, it did um, effectively endorse or implement some anti-drug anti-drug policies. So how how can we explain that? Because fear sells and fear works. And you have a few reasons, I think, for that. One, the vast majority of the politicians who are leading cities and the country are white. Not that I'm saying you haven't got black politicians over the years who have also supported harsh drug laws you have, but in general they've been white. And this has been, the, as you said, uh, Esther, they've been um, Democrat and Republican. In fact, the most draconian drug policies domestically in the last 40 years started under Clinton. I mean, Nixon and Reagan absolutely were very draconian. Clinton hugely increased incarceration rates and introduced three strikes and you're out, which some listeners may be aware essentially means that if you're up to your third conviction, regardless of what it is, it could be literally, you know, stealing a loaf of bread, life sentence. And the judge has no ability to grant parole. I mean, it's an insane system. 
So I've long been not a fan of Bill Clinton. He's no friend of anyone good in my view. And Hillary, if she was president, frankly, wouldn't have been much better. Although I would say I would have preferred her than Trump if that was the only choice. But Obama was a bit better. Obama came into office, I would say, fairly um, predictable on drugs. He opposed legalising cannabis. He, In his first four years in office, he spent his government far too much money on arresting drug marijuana users in parts of the U.S., Come his second term, there was some progress. Progress meaning his administration embarked on a policy to release a number of non-violent drug offenders in prison who were likely to die in jail. And in fact, I met two of them in my book who had been released. There was, these were two black men. They were in prison for offences, they were almost certain going to die in prison. They were not old. I mean, one of them was maybe 50 years, the other one maybe 45, 40. I can't remember the age now. It's in my book. I forget. But they were not old men. And, you know, meeting them, I met them in New York and uh, near Washington, D.C. They were, when they'd been given a second lease on life. I mean, can you imagine? Literally, you'd expect you're going to die in prison. And they... Obama introduced his policy. Now, there's criticism of the policy. It didn't, didn't release enough people. A lot of problems with it. But I think it was roughly 1,700 people in his second term of office were released. And that's a positive. He made a decision, or his attorney general did, I guess it was, who knows who led that, but the decision to not go after American states that legalized cannabis. I mean, cannabis is still illegal federally in the U.S., so to this day, federal officers have every right to go into, for example, a Colorado pot shop, people smoking joints, whatever, and they can be arrested. I mean, it's against the law federally. That hasn't changed. But what the Obama administration decided, and thankfully the Trump administration continued, although there was a fear that Trump would change that, is that they've allowed these states to go about their own business. If they choose to legalise cannabis, they do that fairly on their own ability. They, you know, they're not going to be stopped federally. And I think it's inevitable that cannabis is going to be legalised federally in the US. Whether it happens with the Biden presidency, hard to say. He's never been a particularly big fan of it. Kamala Harris, his vice president, has supported it in the past and he may drop dead in a few weeks and she may take over. So... I don't know, but I think there's a decent chance if it's not that administration, it will happen in the next five or ten years, I think, quite likely. And likewise in the US, sorry, in the UK and Australia, it is inevitable that cannabis will be legalised. It's going to happen. I don't know how or when, but it's going to happen. And the bipartisan nature of so much drug policy is depressing because I heard over and over and over again in the US, UK and Australia that often politicians are just gutless. They're scared of tabloid backlash. They're scared of saying something that's not draconian on drug policy and being attacked in the Daily Mail or the Sun in the UK or the Daily or the New York Post in um, the US or Daily Telegraph or other conservative press in Australia or elsewhere. And it takes a very rare politician to go against that, to challenge that. They do exist, um, but it's depressing, and I might add police are not much better. There are certainly police that I know 
who feature in the book, who are very outspoken about the totally counterproductive, futile nature of the drug war. But the vast majority of them are speaking out after they've left being in the police. They've either retired or moved on to something else. There are some cases in the UK in the last few years of senior police officers around the country in their districts saying that they, they there's a de facto decriminalisation. In other words, yes, in a countrywide basis, illicit drugs are illegal, but if you're caught with a personal amount of any drug, whether it's heroin or cocaine or cannabis or whatever, you'll be let off with a warning and not be charged. And that, to me, is a, is the logical first step towards legalisation, which is what I personally support. But you need police officers and police sergeants to have bravery in saying, why are we spending much time and resources for what end? Like, what are we achieving here? It's insane. Um, counterproductive. And in fact, having literally zero impact on drug use and abuse. As I said, drug use and abuse has never been higher around the world. So you need brave politicians and journalists and police to speak out against the current laws and advocate change. So I wanted to ask one last question with regards to drug consumption in destination countries. In your book, you address the role of the darknet in drug distribution, and you mention how small-scale vendors are now advertising on the darknet that their drugs are being sourced ethically from small-scale non-cartel farmers. So my question is, to what extent does the darknet contribute to decreasing levels of violence along the drug supply chain? And when it comes to drugs such as cocaine, for example, can ethical drug consumption exist? So, you know, when my book came out, I got a lot of questions in the media about the so-called term woke coke, which is an absurd term. I mean, for listeners who don't know what that means, who maybe aren't that young, don't know what that means. Basically, it means the idea of, I guess, ethical cocaine or something like that, the idea that you have bought cocaine off your local dealer, say, either online or in person, and the dealer says, yes, yes, my cocaine is sourced from a very ethical farmer in Colombia, and, you know, it's blood-free, conflict-free, Let me just say straight up, it's complete bullshit. I mean, when I say it's bullshit, I'm not suggesting there aren't farmers and people pushing for more ethical drugs. I'll get to that in a minute. But the idea at the moment that anyone who's buying these drugs is buying, is, is, is convinced that their, they can, their, their morality can be calmed by the fact that they're not harming anyone because their dealer told them it's ethically sourced. It's complete nonsense. There's no evidence I've ever seen. And I'm not saying it never happens, but I've never seen it happen. So that's the first thing that really is important to say, that if, uh, yeah, don't be convinced you're getting ethical drugs. It doesn't really exist. Having said that, of course, there are examples of, for example, now in Mexico, of ethically, draw, uh, ethically grown cannabis. It's happening. It's growing. Obviously, the uh, U.S. market for legal cannabis is massive, and there's absolutely every reason why in Mexico, for example, farmers can and should be able to grow the drug if they want and sell it without the influence of cartels. Um, I'm, as I say in the book and I'm saying elsewhere, I do believe that the idea of ethically sourced drugs is possible. Now, what that means practically is The drugs would need to be legalized or at least 
massively decriminalised. So at the moment, a situation exists where, let's look at cocaine briefly. So cocaine is one of the most popular drugs in the world. Colombia provides roughly 90% of the cocaine in the world. Peru is number two. And there was a peace deal in Colombia in 2016, ended a 50-year-old conflict between the Colombian government and the FARC rebels. The hope was that was going to end the violence or at least reduce it. Here we are four years on, the country is now slipping back into a, not a civil war, but certainly a great degree of conflict. There's massive violence against um, farmers and various other groups. And there are growing numbers of farmers there and politicians, politicians, who say we need to have, they don't use the term ethical cocaine as far as I know, we need to legalise and regulate coca, which of course is what, what, you know, is what leads to cocaine, because keeping it illegal leaves huge amounts of room for criminal gangs, organised crime and others to exploit the situation and screw over virtually everyone in the supply chain apart from those right at the top. And it's amazing to see, even this year, senior Colombian politicians put legislation in front of the Colombian parliament. It failed, which was always going to do, but the idea was to put it on the agenda to say, we have to legalise cocaine. Now, let's make this a reality. Now, it's a while away, to be sure. Obviously, no other country in the world has legalised cocaine, so how would that even practically work? It's a complex issue. But the idea of ethically sourced drugs, to me, comes from a position which, A, acknowledges the fact that a lot of people have always and will always take illicit drugs. That is will. Now, I don't think when, if in my view, we should legalise all drugs, we should encourage people to take drugs. I mean, my vision for this sort of thing is, which we can get to later if you'd like in more detail, but is to say in a legal drug market, there should be no advertising, zero advertising for drugs. So it's not about making drugs cool or sexy, none of that. It's not like you've seen in the last few years of e-cigarettes, which obviously are very different. It's not it's a drug of sorts. When you've had all these ads of, you know, beautiful people in, you know, bikinis on beaches uh, smoking e-cigarettes, and what a surprise, the use of e-cigarettes has gone through the roof of underage kids. What a shock. What a shock. Now, I mean, I know in some companies they've sort of tapped, um, stop that sort of crazy effort. I mean, that to me is insane. And, you know, you would have uh, drugs either produced by the state or grown by the state or managed by the state, sold in, say, pharmacies or whatever it may be, depending on the drug sort, what, what the drug is. So the vast majority of people in the drug supply chain who are not making the money, these are not the people, these are not the El Chapo types. I mean, they're not the billionaires. They are trying to make a living. They're just doing what they can to support their family. I love the vision of a ethical drug system where these people are paid a fair wage. They're given fair rights. I mean, why not have a coca farmer given rostered days off? And maybe it sounds a bit crazy and utopian, and I accept that to an extent, but there are growing numbers of, for example, unionists organising coca farmers in Colombia and other places to sort of say, we're stronger with one voice, and if you do want to grow coca, you should have the right to do so safely without the influence, which is always going to happen when the drugs are illegal by drug cartels and organised crime. And until you legalise drugs and regulate it, organised crime 
loves it, which is why in places like Mexico and elsewhere, they're totally opposed to legalizing drugs, utterly opposed to it because it's going to massively reduce their bottom line. Of course, right? They don't want to legalize drugs. Yes, they'll move into other areas and the cleverer cartels in Mexico now are selling oil and kidnapping people for money and ransom. Sure, they'll always find different ways to make money. But if you take away that income of drugs, that's a huge amount of money taken away from them. And that to me would be a welcome thing. And with those final comments, I think that's about all we have time for. Um, I do hope that this interview has shed light on some of the complexities underpinning criminal justice responses to drug distribution and consumption, as well as the myriad of socio-political and economic dynamics that are at play and that influence government policies towards drugs. Anthony, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. And we're really looking forward to your next publication. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been great.